Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. So, um, pre-COVID, one of my favorite things to do was to take my son, who's now sitting in the back over there, to Las Vegas with me. Now, we are not going to Las Vegas to play the slots or to sit at the blackjack tables. We would go to Las Vegas to watch the Pac-12 basketball tournament. And when I say watch the Pac-12 basketball tournament, I do not mean going and watching like at the sports book. No, we would go to the the T-Mobile arena, which is the 15 or 20,000 person arena in Vegas. And we would watch, I don't know, 12 basketball games live and in person over three days. For us, it was great. Kate never, never wanted to go. I don't understand why. But one of the sort of fun things, quirky things about doing this in Las Vegas is between games and then sometimes at halftime, they would bring out interesting sort of only in Vegas performers. And so um, we would see like Lance Burton, I think is the guy's name, and he would come out and do some magic tricks and it was kind of, these are not A-list Vegas, you know, Celine Dion is not showing up to sing in between games but we would get the guy who finished fifth in American Idol four years before. (laughs) Um, And so it was fun and and we would see Danny Gans, I think is his name, and the cast from um, Rock of Ages would come and sing songs. But my favorite was there was always this woman who would dress in sort of Chinese traditional garb and she was a uh, not a ventriloquist. She was a person who would bend herself. What do you call that? Contortionist. And she would, she, it could be ventriloquist in Vegas, but that wasn't what this woman was doing. And she was a, a contortionist, but she would spin plates on different parts of her body as she was contorting herself. And so she would have plates spinning on both fingers. She'd have a plate spinning on her knee, on her foot, while she like throws her feet over her head and keeps the plates going. Do you remember this person? So today, doing this sermon, I am this woman with multiple plates spinning. So give me a little grace. Particularly, I am recovering from Bell's palsy. And I feel better about it, but we're just adding one more challenge to what could be maybe the most challenging sermon I've had the opportunity to give. Um, So I'm going to start with an article that I found from the New York Times, and it was written in June of 1998. 
The Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest Protestant denomination, and an increasingly conservative force among American religious organizations, amended its essential statement of beliefs today to include a declaration that a woman should, quote, submit herself graciously to her husband and his leadership, and that a husband should, quote, provide for, protect, and lead his family. The amendment, a 250-word declaration, was adopted by a show of hands at the Baptists' annual meeting here. The vote was overwhelmingly in favor of the amendment, and an effort to soften the language was turned back soundly. The amendment ranks among the most prominent statements on family life by a major religious organization in years. The Southern Baptist denomination claims over 16 million members. It's now less than 14 million members. While the amendment says the husband and wife have, quote, equal worth before God, the choice of words about marital relations also makes it the most conservative of such declarations. The amendment relies on biblical passages like Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, which compares the husband and wife relationship to that of Christ ruling the church. Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, said the amendment was based on a Southern Baptist belief in the literal interpretation of scripture. The submission of wives to their husbands, Mr. Moeller says, is not a quote modern idea, but is clearly and cleanly revealed in scripture. Speaking of the amendment, he said, the secular world may believe it to be strange, but it is God's pattern. Okay. So this doctrinal position still exists in the Southern Baptist Church. And it's an affirmation of what people with fancy degrees call complementarianism. And it's been used within churches other than the Southern Baptist Church as well. The Southern Baptist Declaration cites Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 as a primary reason why women should be prevented from serving as pastors, why women should be prevented from serving as preachers. And it's still the official doctrinal standard of the SBC and was more recently in the news with Beth Moore. Um, the short story is that a friend of Beth Moore's tweeted to her that she would be preaching in a Southern Baptist church in Mother's Day, on Mother's Day in 2019. Beth Moore responded via Twitter. Beth Moore said, I'm doing Mother's Day too. Please don't tell anyone. Remember, this is a tweet that Beth Moore sent out publicly. As you can imagine, a firestorm erupted in the Southern Baptist Church, and it eventually led to Beth Moore, who's maybe the most famous Southern Baptist in the country, to leave the church. So for me, a man that is married to a brilliant woman and serves here at Left Hand Church with four other people that are highly competent, highly qualified, highly intelligent, and that happen to be women, well, I think it's an important sermon for me specifically to give today. So today we're continuing our sermon series, A Walk Through Ephesians. 
We're going to spend most of our time looking at a passage of scripture that has probably caused more division and dissension among Christians as any, at least within the family space. And it's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. If you have your Bible open or you can pull out your Bible app on your phone, and again, this is me trying to keep a couple different plates spinning. Verse 21 goes like this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's, that's key. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. All right, I'm going to say something, and you can choose to agree or disagree, but I think it's the most challenging scripture of passage in the Bible that deals with family and relationships. And a lot of times this passage has been misused and abused. It's been taken out of context. It's been used as a sword by people that want to use the Bible to prop up their own worldview about the relative value of men versus women. We did a sermon series earlier this year where we talked about the need for wisdom when reading the Bible, about how the Bible cannot be viewed as a one-for-all rule book and that it is ambiguous and it requires discernment and wisdom. If you haven't listened to the series, I think it's one of the best series that we've done. It's called How Does the Bible Work? And you can find it on our Ridiculous Love podcast on the Left Hand Church website. And really, if you want to understand how Left Hand views the Bible, I think it's an important thing and a good resource to listen to. We've seen how the Bible can fail when we look at it as a rule book. And I want to take a step back for just a second from this male-female issue and look at a different issue. If we look at slavery, for example, we can see the failure of reading the Bible as a rule book. While Paul never really argues for slavery, he definitely assumes its legitimacy. He assumes that it is legitimate. He never calls into question the institution of slavery. He never calls for the abolition of slavery. And that's part of the story, and I think it needs to be acknowledged. We need to understand that as Christians. The church has a far from flawless track record when it comes to slavery. There are instances of horrible, shameful behavior done in the name of Jesus or done in the name of Christianity, not the least of which is the buying and selling of Africans. And it's also important to look at the context of the world when Paul said these things. Because Paul was really pushing the social boundaries of the time 
when, for example, he claimed that slaves are equal to free persons in God's, in God's view, which Paul does in Galatians 3.28. This didn't really match up with the thinking of the religious conservatives at the time because slaves didn't have the same rights as free Israelites did. So Paul, when talking about slavery, did sometimes push boundaries, but just not far enough for a modern reader. Now, if you ask Joe Christian or Jane Christian on the street what Christians think about slavery today, they probably say, well, Christians denounce slavery as immoral, as something that's anathema to God. Generally speaking, in other words, the church is known for having accepted some of Paul's boundary pushing and then pushing it a little further. Freedom and equality eventually went out over passages like Ephesians 6, 5, which says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Right? Because that passage was the go-to passage for 19th century slave owners. And how did the abolitionists argue against it? Well, they did something that we talk about in this church over and over and over again by noting that the Bible has an arc. It has a trajectory, a narrative, and that trajectory is one that moves towards justice and equality for everyone. The argument of the abolitionists was a wisdom argument, tied not to the literal words on the page, but rather where the spirit was leading them, and therefore leading us. The point is that sometimes we have to go beyond the Bible and take seriously the moment and read the moment as well as the Bible. So that same principle of wisdom is important for us when we're trying to understand this passage in Ephesians that the Southern Baptists love so much. Let's look at the passage again. In a rather striking move for the time, we see that husbands and wives should submit to each other. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, is Ephesians 5.21. That's oftentimes missed by groups who don't want to focus on that. But then we have the next sentence. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. It's not exactly the stuff of social liberation. It goes on to say, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, it's important to know also that Paul was writing to a specific point in history. On the social ladder during Paul's time, women had a clearly defined rung, which was below men. I seriously doubt that women's rights, as we think of them today, was on Paul's radar, given his time and place. But simply lighting a match to the social ladder, as many of us probably wish he would have done, would have gotten him nowhere. A move like that would have actually created more obstacles, more barriers for the Christian movement in a Greco-Roman world. And the truth is, quite honestly, that Paul's comments straddled the line. While his words definitely fell 
within the social expectation of his time and fall frustratingly short of what we wish he would have said. Paul also pushed things forward by calling on liberation from social expectation out of reverence for Christ. So I'm going to do something that is not typically in my wheelhouse that I don't like to do, and that's give Paul a little bit of credit. Because in many other pieces of ancient literature that talk about male and female relationships, they all said that wives need to submit and obey their husbands. Submission and obedience were often linked together. So for Paul, only to use the word submission, which is a voluntary act, it's a form of grace. It actually undermines the family values of the Greco-Roman culture that surrounded him. And for him to say to men, you have to love your wives, it was unheard of. It was not the norm. Which raises the question of, well, then what was the norm? What were Greco family, Greco-Roman family values of the time? And they were largely based on Aristotle's concept of family, based on submission and obedience. You had your husband and your wife. You had your father and your children. You had your master and your slave. So some of these verses in Ephesians actually do depart fairly significantly from the Greek view, particularly the more egalitarian verses that command husbands to love their wives. And therefore, when we see Southern Baptists emphasizing a wife's submission, well, this policy would have been right at home in the first century. But I think it's fair to ask whether it accurately reflects the tone and intent and changes that Paul is actually pushing for here. And it brings up an ironic twist. If Paul was going to obliterate the social expectation of his day, he would have impeded his message and his mission to spread the message. But cultural expectations today are not what they were in the Roman Empire and in Paul's time. And so for us today, taking Paul's words about, women's, about women and women's issues means employing the same bit of wisdom, but arriving at the exact opposite conclusion about the role and status of women given our cultural expectation. Christians today can and should build on his wise trajectory, but push it forward. So only by disobeying Paul's command that wives actually submit to their husbands are we actually following the path of wisdom that Paul himself was setting out. I'm going to say it again. Only by disobeying Paul's command that wives must submit to their husbands are we actually following the path of wisdom that Paul was laying out for us. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And the same thing is true for Paul's statement that women should be silent in churches, which is found in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, and where he says, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man, which Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12. And by the way, the SBC loves those verses. 
But instead, I sometimes think that we should focus on verses like Romans 16:7, where Paul praises a woman named Junia as a prominent apostle, which is a role that was often reserved for men. And in the Orthodox tradition, Junia traveled extensively and preached the gospel to thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians and was very successful as a preacher. I think maybe someone needs to introduce Junia to the SBC. Or maybe we need to focus on 1 Corinthians 11, 4, and 5, where Paul takes for granted that women are praying and prophesying or speaking for God in public, right alongside men, rather than being silent. The point here is not to point out inconsistencies of Paul. It's not my point that there are sometimes inconsistencies in the Bible. But it is a sign that we need to use our wisdom when we're interpreting these different passages. And so one question that all of this raises is, do we, are we not supposed to take the Bible seriously? And uh, I think we're required to take verses like this and really, really wrestle with them, not be flippant about them, not just skip over them, but really wrestle with them, think about them, take time and hold them up against our North Star, our compass, whatever that may be in your own spiritual life. For us, speaking as pastors, that North Star, that compass is the greatest commandment. The thing that Jesus says is the greatest commandment, to love your God, to love your neighbors, and to love yourself. And I think if that guides our questions, I think we'll more often than not come to the right answer. And here in this church, I look at my female co-pastors, and they help me live out the greatest commandment. Paula's impact on my theology and the way I think about God has been really, really powerful and meaningful to me. Christy and her love of people inspires me every time I'm with her. And Nicole's impact on this church and her love of this church and her operational skills, it's been profound. And Heather Lynn's ability to inspire us and to help us maybe sometimes see God a little, a little more clearly and is energizing. I think I can speak for all of us as a church community when we say thank you to all of the women who help lead this church because the SBC has this one wrong. And I strongly believe the left-hand church is a good example of why that is. And I think that this is an important point. I want all of us to have a big faith, a faith that's big enough to handle challenges that come our way and open enough to celebrate whatever new discoveries may come up in the world. I don't want to have faith that craters when we see bones in a classroom that are over 4,000 years old. I don't want a faith that cradles when we learn that mm, the sun doesn't really revolve around the earth. I don't want a faith that craters when we decide that the king doesn't have the divine right to rule over me or you. 
I also don't want to have a small enough, I want to have a big enough faith, I don't want to have a small enough faith that gets extinguished because I don't think that Paul goes far enough in denouncing slavery. I want to hold a big faith, like a tree planted firmly in faith with deep roots that is able to bend instead of break when new information arises. And to me, that is at the heart of understanding who God is. Because I sometimes think that we think that God is behind us, that God is in the past, back there, and that we are endlessly trying to get to return to how things were. It's a return to traditional values, that the value of our grandparents and our grandparents' grandparents and their grandparents going back and back and back was somehow more moral or more godly. The things were better necessarily in the good old days. I know I've been in situations and environments where that was sort of intimated. And built into that view can sometimes be the idea that God, God is in the past. That we need to return to our roots, our traditional values, because that's where God is dwelling. But I don't think that's right. And I've been struggling with a way to say this. But I came up with the following, thanks to Kate. I view God as pulling us forward. Maybe with God's hand slightly on our back, pushing us, nudging us, and sometimes muttering under God's breath, eh, these people are slow sometimes. And sometimes these people are not as bright as would be ideal. And I believe that God is pulling us forward toward a better, more inspiring vision for the future than we can imagine. And I'm glad to play some small role in that with my female colleagues. Let's pray. God, thank you for this church community, for the people that make up this church. Please grant us wisdom, the wisdom to hear your spirit, to follow your spirit in the same way that Paul did many years ago. Please give us a big faith, one with branches deep in the ground that won't topple over when we're faced with a new issue or a new discovery. Help us to remain rooted in your greatest commandment, to love God, to love our neighbors, and to love ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.